Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Chris Pope. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where his work primarily focuses on healthcare policy, hospitals, entitlements, and health insurance markets. Chris has also been a regular writer for City Journal for a few years now, tackling all those topics and more, including the subject of today's discussion, Congress. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Brian. Since the election outcome was clarified, the balance of power in the Senate now stands at 50-50, but with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, able to cast a tie-breaking vote, the Democrats basically have narrow control of both the Senate and the House. Uh, One of the issues we're going to be hearing a lot more about as the Biden administration picks up momentum this year is going to be the Senate's filibuster. Uh, Liberals, as you've noted, are increasingly keen to abolish the 60-vote threshold to overcome a Republican filibuster, and they've been encouraged in this uh, seemingly by by President Biden and his predecessor, uh, President Obama. When you wrote about this issue for us, I think it was back in October, you said the uh, abolishing of the filibuster would be unlikely. Why do you think that's true? And have you seen anything that would change your mind in recent developments? Yeah, I I think back in October when I made that prediction, I was actually, I think, like most people, assuming that the Democrats were going to have a more sizable majority even than they currently do. I think most people back then were kind of assuming they would get maybe 53 or so seats. And it seems like they're only going to get uh, 50 seats or, or sorry, we know that they only have 50 seats with the vice president as a type breaking vote. And so what seemed very unlikely in October is now we know an impossibility that they're going to abolish the filibuster. Joe Manchin has even come out and said he's going to abolish He's opposed to abolishing the filibuster, but he's not the only one. Um, lots of other Democrats, you can be sure, in the Senate have uh, feel similarly, although they're less eager to say so. They're, they're probably more dependent on liberal primary voters and on liberals to uh, secure their election. Uh, Joe Manchin, obviously coming from West Virginia, has nothing to worry about from that direction. And, and if anything, the fact that he's standing uh, aside from liberals and, and sort of irritating them is probably of some political benefit to him back home. Now, do we expect to see the use of the reconciliation process in Congress uh, a lot going forward? And maybe you could explain uh, for our listeners exactly what that involves. Yeah, so the reconciliation process is probably best thought of as a loophole that gets a Senate majority around the filibuster. So the filibuster rule, just to summarize for anyone who might be might not be entirely familiar, is basically uh, the fact that any senator can hold up debate and can prevent action uh, in the Senate unless there is a cloture vote, which is essentially 60 senators voting to... Uh, to, to move things along, move move a bill on to find a passage, or basically to force someone to stop talking. Um, so that basically gives uh, 40 out of 100 senators the ability to, to block action, gives a minority the ability to block action. Well, the reconciliation process is actually exempt from that rule. 
there are debate limits in the reconciliation process. You can't just talk forever. Uh, there is a, an hours limit for any bill that's subject to reconciliation. And so the filibuster doesn't work under the reconciliation process, which means that a simple majority in the Senate can rule. You, you only need 51 votes uh, to carry something on reconciliation. Now, the, the catch is that you can only do certain things through reconciliation. In short, it's essentially uh, ma fiscal and, and budgetary matters that can be can be um, can be done through reconciliation. And this is defined fairly narrowly uh, with a whole array of precedents. Um, that, uh, that, 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 that basically are designed to constrain the use of the reconciliation process. So if you think of it basically as a, a, a process that allows Congress to increase spending or reduce spending on any existing matter of law, but can't actually really change the technical regulations associated with, 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 uh, with uh, the whole federal code. Um, so it, it, you can do a lot if you kind of phrase something as increasing spending or reducing spending. But the moment that you want to tweak the regulation, then you run another filibuster again. So it, it's potentially a useful tool, but it's also a constrained tool. I see. So um, a couple of uh, items on the Biden agenda. I, I'd love to get your views on whether you think we're going to see these or not. So one would be uh, the $15 minimum wage, which a federal minimum wage, which which Biden campaigned on, and also, and more ambitiously, uh, the the Green New Deal. Um, how much of that do you expect to see become law in the months ahead? So, I, I, certainly on the, on the minimum wage, that is not something that's going to be possible through reconciliation. Um, that's essentially a regulation. Um, reconciliation procedures, uh, even though some people have argued, well, the minimum wage has uh, impacts on the federal budget and therefore it should be allowed for reconciliation. The reconciliation provisions basically say that things that have incidental impacts on the federal government, uh, on the federal budget, can't be done through reconciliation. So that, that clearly rules out the minimum wage in my understanding is that there is actually some direct precedent in, in this respect. Um, and members of Congress, they can change reconciliation rules through a simple majority. But again, Joe Manchin said that he's not going to do this. So I, I think we can assume that the minimum wage would not pass through reconciliation. Although it, there is a chance that it could be done by bipartisan agreement uh, towards the end of the Bush administration, the minimum wage was increased through uh, bipartisan legislation. And it is possible that if you did it as a bipartisan package, you could pick up enough Republican votes to get to 60 votes, although that that at this point might still be unlikely. And, and it seems like Democrats aren't that hopeful of getting there. So certainly $15 minimum wage isn't going to happen. Joe Manchin himself has said that he'd only support an $11 minimum wage, but doesn't support breaking the filibuster to get there. So the um, unless there's a sudden uh, group of Republicans who are willing to trade increased minimum wage, I think we can be sure that that's unlikely to happen. The Green New Deal is potentially a, a, a long laundry list of regulatory and spending items. It's uh, to the extent that... Uh, that it's a nebulous vision, it's possible to imagine some spending programs uh, that, uh, that, that could be allowed through reconciliation. 
uh, some spending items that have an environmental impact that advance some environmental causes you can imagine uh, subsidies for green energy taxes on fossil fuels those kinds of things potentially could be done through reconciliation but the uh, probably falls a long way short of uh, of what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was, was sort of looking for and had in mind uh, when she pledged that. And then again, there are just ordinary political constraints that get in the way. Um, I think it's fair to assume that many members of Congress, uh, if imagine you're a moderate Democrat member of Congress and you oppose a liberal provision, well, it, it's a lot easier to say, you know, I would love to be able to do this but the filibuster is stopping me than saying than arguing with your base as to why you think it's a good idea. So a lot of quiet liberal opposition uh, to a uh, quiet moderate democratic opposition to liberal interest groups tends to hide behind the filibuster and tends to quite uh, quite enjoy the filibuster as a way of saving it from having to make lots of unpleasant and awkward arguments against their own side that might be disillusioning. I mentioned at the outset, you write a lot on healthcare issues, entitlements. That's obviously a huge part of what the federal government uh, does today. What have you seen thus far out of the Biden administration uh, on this front? And again, what, what might we expect uh, going forward with such a sharply divided Congress? Well, Joe Biden, very, I mean, he was Obama's vice president, has very much in terms of healthcare policy, aligned himself with Obamacare, wanting not to reject it with, with Medicare for All, as some of his uh, primary campaign uh, opponents did. But he, he's wanted to um, expand on it, uh, build on it. Um, and, and to be specific, uh, he, he campaigned on expanding subsidies for Obamacare, for people to buy plans from the Obamacare exchange. And actually, just yesterday, uh, Representative Neal, who is the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is the chairman of, of the, the Committee of Jurisdiction, has proposed essentially what, what Biden has called for in that respect, which is slightly expanding the subsidies that individuals are entitled to if they buy uh, Obamacare plans uh, from the individual market. So that, that I think, is, is, is likely to have political support. Uh, that I think would be quite likely to go through, even with just 50 votes. Obviously, when you're Democrats are a heartbeat away from losing their Senate majority, so anything could happen. But um, it, but, but it, assuming that that things stay stay as they are uh, in the Senate, that um, they will have the votes to slightly expand uh, subsidies for Obamacare. As um, as Biden called for in his campaign and and is um, is is proposing currently um, today. Now another um, um, policy idea that has uh, been making the news lately actually comes from Mitt Romney, who has proposed a child allowance plan. Um, I'm wondering what your take is on that. In some ways, uh, the the proposal is similar to certain ideas that the Biden uh, administration seems seems open to. Uh, so perhaps it's an opportunity for bipartisanship. But what, what's your take on it? Do you think it's a good idea? And do you think it would get uh, sufficient Republican support to become law? So Representative Neal's um, bill that he released yesterday 
uh, as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, includes a substantial child tax credit proposal. And in a sense, that's more important than the Romney proposal, because obviously uh, Representative Niels in the, is the chairman of the, of the most powerful committee in the House of Representatives, whereas Mitt Romney is a uh, back, backbench member of the Senate Minority Party, as it were. So uh, Niels' proposal matters more than Romney's. Uh, it, they both involve a substantial child tax credit of about $3,000. Um, and the big difference between them is essentially the fact that uh, Mitt Romney's one is paid for and, and, and Representative Neil, Chairman Neal's one is not. Um, and so that, I think, if you're uh, somewhat conservatively minded, that, that, that's, that's a big and important difference. Um, the notion, if you look at Romney's proposal, it very much involves consolidating a lot of existing programs, getting rid of work disincentives, trying to make sure that existing funding streams that already go to, to, to families are more rationally allocated, and that this is budget neutral and really tries to be uh, careful to ensure that it's budget neutral. So the Romney proposal, I think, has been sold uh, to folks on the center and, and the right of center as really a cleaning up of existing law that is almost a common sense good government item. Uh, the uh, Chairman Neal's proposal is, even though it sort of superficially sounds similar, um, is really just a new entitlement led on top of existing entitlements with all the distortions and work disincentives that are inherent in existing entitlements and adds to them. Um, so I, I think that is, people, it might not be an accident that these two proposals have come out fairly close together. And that I, what, what Democrats in the administration are, are surely hoping is that some of the good feeling associated with the Romney proposal uh, might rub off on the, uh, uh, on their own proposal that, that that's being advanced through the House Ways and Means Committee, um, the chances are good. Again, spending more money is something that unites Democrats. Uh, it's not a, a complicated issue like something to do with environmental regulation, where you might start losing members from Appalachia. Uh, there's no kind of divisive social issue associated with it. Most Democrats broadly support uh, ex uh, spending more money on low-income families. So you can imagine this is going to keep the caucus united. But but again, there, there is this issue that the majority is razor thin uh, in, in the Senate and, and pretty thin in the House as well. And so they don't have a huge amount of votes to spare. If it is just a new entitlement led on top of every other entitlement, I think it's got very little chance of picking up any Republican votes. Uh, and so, but, but on the other hand, even... Even Romney's uh, proposal, which is budget neutral and paid for, that didn't seem to have, didn't seem to uh, uh, command a huge amount of enthusiasm from other Republican members of Congress, Senator Rubio, Senator Lee, who ha have been supportive of child tax credits. Uh, uh, there, there were essentially tax cuts in the past came out and said that they weren't enthusiastic and, and opposed the idea of a new entitlement, even one that was paid for. So I mean, it's, it could be very close just because the Senate majority and, and the House majority are very, very small right now. These are very, very narrow congressional majorities and probably the narrowest majorities Democrats have had uh, in Congress for many decades.
Thanks very much, Chris. Don't forget to check out Chris Pope's work on the City Journal website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page and his recent work in the podcast description. You can follow Chris on Twitter at CPopeHC. That's at CPopeHC. You can also follow City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please leave us a nice ratings on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks very much again, Chris, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.